Good morning, everyone. So glad to see each of you here. We're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh. And have you ever, uh, as we're getting started, I wanted to ask you to, to think about something. Have you ever faced a choice with huge consequences on both sides of the choice? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. For example, getting married or not getting married. There is a huge thing on either side of that question, right? Uh, if you're not getting married, your life is yours to arrange and live as you see fit. You have to answer to no one. You have the freedom to pursue any job anywhere you want, do all this. Uh, you're unfettered uh, and are free to do things as you see fit. On the other hand, if you get married, you're entering into a lifelong commitment, a covenant with someone. And you're uh, going to build a life together. And you're going to have a whole different experience of life as a married person than you will have as a single person. And I think you can understand that there are huge things on either side of this balance, this question, and they're mutually exclusive. You're either going to do one or you're going to do the other, and taking one means giving up on the other. It means releasing the other and not having uh, what lies on the other side of that balance. Have you ever considered that Jesus presents us with just that kind of a dilemma? I'd like you to be thinking as we go through the passage today, what hangs on either side of the balance when it comes to this dilemma of what we're going to do with Jesus? I've titled the message, The Dilemma with Jesus, and we're in John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Let's begin reading here in verse 45. So many from the Jews who had come to Mary and seen what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in council and were saying, What should we do? For this man is doing many signs. If we allow him to go on in this way, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away from us both the place and the nation. This comes at the tail end of a chapter in which a lot of things have already taken place. Basically, the big thing that has just happened is that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. This man had been dead for four days. You imagine an unembalmed human body left out in, in a cave somewhere with no refrigeration of any kind in the springtime. Four days, you leave a body like that. You're not going to come in and use a couple of paddles and bring this guy back. It's just not going to happen. But Jesus takes a man who's been dead four days, who's been decaying for four days, and brings him fully back to life. That's an astounding thing that he did with Lazarus. So as a result, John tells us, many of the Jews who happened to be there because they had come up from Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha in the loss of their brother Lazarus, they saw what Jesus did and they believed in Jesus. But not everybody believed in Jesus. From that group, some of them took the opposite route. 
uh, instead of believing in Jesus, they went and looked up Jesus' enemies to give them a detailed report on what Jesus is up to. Uh, they ran and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. Now, uh, this is one of the few places in John's Gospel where he doesn't refer to the enemies as Jesus just generically as the Jews. That's kind of John's shorthand for the religious leadership. The representatives of the people, uh, the Jewish people, uh, how they basically uh, wholesale had rejected Jesus with the notable exceptions of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. But all the others seem to have unanimously rejected Jesus. We've seen that already in the Gospel of John, confrontation after confrontation. So uh, at this point, John does give us some specifics in terms of the groups we're talking about. The two he mentions are Pharisees and chief priests. And these are basically the people that make up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of 72 members, and it was basically the high court uh, that had the highest jurisdiction in Jewish questions and affairs. This was the highest political body the Romans allowed the Jews to have. They did not allow Jews to be kings or governors. Uh, in Judea, they appointed a Roman procurator, and in the other regions, they split it up between the sons of Herod the Great, who was not a Jew. So Rome had put in place as kings and governors people who were not Jews, but they did allow the Jews some level of uh, autonomy, some level of self-governance, and the Sanhedrin was how that happened. The chief priests were the really wealthy, extremely well-to-do. Most of them, uh, the Sadducees were, were this group. Uh, and because they ran the temple they were able to become obscenely wealthy uh, because they had turned a, a one-time tax that Moses talked about in the law into an annual tax. And they had Jews coming in and paying their tax to the temple every year and raking in the money. And there was far more money coming in than they needed for the daily sacrifices. Um, so they were obscenely wealthy. Historians tell us that the living quarters of the Sadducees in Jerusalem were comparable to those of senators in Rome. That gives you an idea of just how well off these people were. So the Sanhedrin is made up mainly of Sadducees, of chief priests, but there's a minority group in the Sanhedrin of the Pharisees, and the reason they have a seat at the table is that they were the teachers of Israel. The sphere of influence of the Sadducees and the chief priests was the temple. The sphere of influence of the Pharisee was the synagogue. They taught. They taught people the Torah. Not only that, but they had very meticulously and carefully committed to memory the teachings of rabbis from centuries past. Uh, this oral Torah, uh, they referred to as the traditions of the elders. The, Jesus mentions these things in his teaching. Uh, the Pharisees were in charge of that, and they were very much respected by the people because they stood in that position as people who told them what God's word meant. And they were considered the great experts on that. So they were not wealthy. They were not politically as 
powerful and connected as the Sadducees were, but they were very happy to have a seat at that table, and they were there because of their influence over the people through teaching in the synagogues. So it's not surprising that the people that want to inform the authorities about what Jesus is up to approach the Pharisees because these were not the ultra-rich, off in their mansions, wealthy people. These were much more accessible. They were able to get to the Pharisees and tell them what's going on. What happens when they tell them what Jesus has just done? Well, uh, they gather in council. That word there in the Greek is Sanhedrin. But it's the only occasion in the New Testament in which that word is used without the definite article. It doesn't say the Sanhedrin. It just says they gathered in Sanhedrin. Given that the word Sanhedrin means council, it seems that John is indicating here that this is not an officially called meeting of the Sanhedrin, but that the uh, Pharisees and chief priests are holding a kind of informal council uh, where they gather it together. If it had been a called meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, then uh, it would have been called by the chief priest, uh, by the the high priest. uh, And John, later on in this text here, just mentions... Caiaphas as uh, one among them, one who happens to be with them in this meeting. So uh, he's not described as presiding over the meeting. Uh, All of this points to this being kind of a a quick, impromptu, called together meeting. What do we do about this? And uh, they are at a loss. What should we do? I think it's very interesting. They say this man is doing many signs. They don't say he's performing many miracles. I think they get the point uh, that John is making in this gospel that every single, and John is very selective. He only tells us of six signs of Jesus and the Lazarus sign is the last of them. So he very carefully cherry-picked the signs of Jesus that he's going to tell us about and every single one of them is embedded in a huge teaching section. For example, Jesus is talking about, I am the light of the cosmos. I have come to bring light into creation. And then he culminates that teaching section by demonstrating what he's talking about when he takes a man who had been born blind and opens his eyes and gives him the gift of sight. proving what he's talking about. I am the light of the cosmos. And every single one of Jesus' signs has not just been a miracle, look what I can do. Uh, It's a, a sign, a teaching element that points to something beyond the bare miracle itself. Even the raising of Lazarus is preceded by Jesus very publicly lifting his Uh, gaze to heaven and saying, Father, thank you for hearing me. And then in the hearing of everybody, he says, Father, I know you always hear me. I'm not saying this because I need to clear this up with you. I'm saying this out loud in front of all these people so that they will know that you sent me. And then he raises Lazarus. So when Jesus raised Lazarus, he was performing a sign that proved that all the things he'd been telling Martha about, when he he told Martha, sorry, I am the resurrection and the life. 
I don't just give these as gifts. I am life itself. There is no life without me. And what, I am, what I've come to give to you is not just the gift of life. I have come to give myself to you and to secure for you in me life everlasting. And because of me, if you believe in me, you will never, ever die. Death is irrelevant because you are secured and grounded eternally in I who am life. Those are pretty big statements. How do you convince people that you're not just somebody who lost his mind and who's gone bat crazy? Normally people who talk like that have just become absolutely unhinged. How does Jesus prove he's not crazy? Let me take a guy who's been dead four days. Let me call on God the Father to raise him back to life. And then let me prove to you that I am exactly who I say I am and that I am doing exactly what I said I'm going to do. What better way to prove that I am life than to make somebody four days dead live? So yeah, they're exactly right. This man is performing many signs And we all know where this is pointing. Everyone is going to believe in him if we just let this go the way it is. If we don't stop it, everyone's going to believe in him. And this is their big fear. The Romans are going to come. They're going to take away from us both the place, and that seems to be a reference to the temple, the place of worship. This thing that they have fought so hard to rebuild after the Babylonians destroyed it and that they have been very uh, laboriously remodeling for decades. It started with Herod who died back in the year 6. We're in 33 now. They're still working on it. This spectacular remodeling project and the Jews in Jesus' day are so proud of their temple because it has never looked more glorious than it does right then. They're afraid the Romans are going to take this place of worship and I think their concern is not so much the worship bit but this temple is the seat of their power. The reason they are as wealthy as they are is the temple. The reason they have the power they have, the reason Rome cares about who they are, is the temple. And they're afraid of losing that and their whole nationhood. Now, of course, they really aren't functioning as a nation. The Romans have split them up into a couple of regions, and they place different governors over each region. They really are, at this point, an annexed province on the far fringes of the Roman Empire. They're not functioning as a nation. They don't have their own king. But they're very happy with the way things are because Rome has secured their position of power. And uh, the, the level of respect and authority that they are now enjoying is very much secured by Rome. You have to wonder, as Jewish religious leaders who were familiar with the law, 
why they're worried about Rome. Well, I'll tell you something about the Sadducees. They only accepted the five books of Moses as word of God. They rejected all the rest of the books of the Old Testament. And it's all the rest of the books of the Old Testament that really get into the nitty-gritty about talking about the coming of the Messiah, all that. You know the reason they only cared about the books of Moses? They didn't believe that there was even life after death. They thought that when you're dead, you're gone. Therefore, grab as much as you can right now. And the reason they felt that way is that things were going so well for them right now, they didn't really think they needed more than all the power and wealth they had right now. And uh, that was their perspective. Now, there are Pharisees who are part of this. And they are very much, they do accept the rest of the Old Testament canon. And, and they're very aware of the promises about the Messiah. But they're in on this with the Sadducees because they have seated. They have uh, the ability to be participants in this prestige and power. Now, the, the scriptures talk about God sending a king who is going to rule all the nations and establish the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is going to stand forever, eternally. I think of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? The nations come to counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh and his anointed, saying, let's cast off their chains. Let's get their fetters off from over us. And in the psalm, the psalmist says, Yahweh in heaven laughs. I have appointed my king and he is going to rule. I don't care what the nations do about it. You would think that they would say, you know what, if this is the Messiah, who cares what Rome's going to do? There's no stopping this. But they have set themselves up against Jesus. Every step of the way they have resisted him. They have accused him of being in league with the devil himself. They have called him a sinner and tried to encourage people to repudiate him. Every step of the way, they have tried to oppose him. Here's the thing they realize. If Jesus is the Messiah, we have basically cut ourselves out of this kingdom. What do we do? How do we stop this Messiah? How do we keep things the way they are? I, I, it just seems the more we try, the bigger Jesus gets. The, 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 the higher he raises the stakes. Now it's not just healing blind people. He is raising people four days dead. What's going to happen next? Jesus was proving through signs that he was God himself come, as he said, to give us eternal life. And yet these religious leaders are more afraid of Rome than of God. Let me ask you about your perspective. What would you say? Are you more concerned in your life with God or with the powers that seem to be at work around you? Are you more worried about God than your boss? 
Let's keep reading verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You have known nothing, nor have you considered that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should be destroyed. Caiaphas was a shrewd politician. I told you the, the Romans appointed the high priest. They decided who got to be high priest. And because people were constantly jockeying for Rome's favor in, in Jerusalem, most high priests didn't last more than two or three years. Caiaphas has the distinction of having been the high priest who held on to the title for the longest period in the whole first century. He held on to it for 18 years, from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. That tells me that he knew how to keep Rome happy, and he knew how to keep his political opponents uh, in check. He didn't let people usurp his position. He addresses this convened council. And he addresses them, uh, Josephus tells us this about the Sadducees, that they were arrogant and rude to fellow Jews and talked to them like they were Gentiles. He demonstrates the kind of dismissive disdain that people accustomed to being in authority use, right? He says, you guys don't know anything. You bunch of morons. Why are you wringing your hands about all of this? Good grief, the solution is so simple. I can't believe you haven't already said it. Kill him. Be done with it. You're worried about the nation and what Rome's going to do to us and about all this coming tumbling down. All you have to do to secure what you have is get rid of Jesus. Isn't it better for you to just eliminate him altogether and then we're done arguing about it? What do you mean, what should we do? Kill him. Be done with him. His math was simple. Get rid of Jesus and hang on to what you've built. Let me ask you to think. We, we look at that and say, boy, those guys were so bad. Man, they're terrible people. I think we all kind of face that, don't we? Have you ever faced the temptation in your life to be rid of Jesus because you're trying to protect something you know he's going to take from you? Sometimes there are things in our lives that we, we'd rather protect then let Jesus in. Verse 51. But this he said, not from himself, rather, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also so that God might gather into one his children who have been scattered. <clears throat> John has a parenthetical comment here. He says, you know what? I'm telling you this that Caiaphas said, and I suspect uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were the, the people that were sources for some of these things that we have in the Gospels. They were part of the Sanhedrin. Um, he says, Caiaphas didn't just say this from his own initiative. God was using him to communicate a profound truth in this moment. Unwittingly, Caiaphas has spoken something much more true than he realized. 
Now his thought was, let's not worry about it. Let's just kill Jesus and we will protect what we're trying to hold on to. Let Jesus die for the good of all these other people, for us, uh, all these other people being us. But let us benefit from the death of the one man. That was his callous thought. And John says, you know, that was exactly what was going to happen. And it becomes a prophecy, a communication from God himself that conveys what God is up to. Jesus was going to die for the nation. And John says, wait a minute, that's not enough. Not just the nation. He was going to die for the whole human race so that God might gather into one his children who have been scattered. God isn't just worried about this little nation in this little corner of the Roman Empire, this little place about the size of New Hampshire. God is concerned about the whole earth. And his children have been spread out across the globe. God wants to gather them back into one. Gather them back to himself. Jesus is going to give up his life so that God can gather us back. I think sometimes we forget that. We forget that Jesus didn't die just to address the things I want him to address about my life. He didn't die so that I'd have a good job and uh, a relatively uh, complication-free life and uh, I would have a victory uh, over every uh, difficult circumstance and all these personal betterment things. He had a bigger plan in mind. When he died, he was trying to reconcile the human race fractured by sin. You know, God created us for community. When he first created Adam, before sin had entered the picture, when the creation itself was still what God said, very good. He looked at Adam, and the only thing he ever said about creation that wasn't good before sin was he said, it's not good that he should be alone. And he created Eve. You know, the reason we need each other is not sin. God designed us to need each other. God designed us for community. Now sin twists our need for each other. And we end up with things like codependency and abuse and all the horrible things that come with sin. But we were designed for community. People who say, I don't need church, I just need God, me and God. I can, I, at home I can do even better than what I can do at church. I I can pray, I can worship, and God and I know each other, we're close, and, and that's all I need. Well, not according to God it isn't. He died to gather you into one. That's why we come here every Sunday morning. We're not trying to check off something in a box. We're not trying to fulfill some religious requirement. We are enjoying the benefits of God dying on a cross so that we could be one again. Sin has broken us, fractured our community. 
our ability to love one another and every sin, and we're plagued with them, every sin sabotages unity. Christ died to give it back to us. So yeah, Caiaphas spoke a more profound truth than he ever knew. One would give his life, not just for many, for all of us. Not just to protect. Now, this idea of protecting nation, these things they were worried about, their temple, their nationhood, that they're going to lose before too much longer. In the year 70 AD, that temple is going to be razed to the ground. And to this day, it's not been rebuilt. And I don't believe it ever will be rebuilt. I think God was done with that building. He had a real temple to build made of living stones, his church. That they're going to lose. Their nationhood, Rome is going to scatter them and uh, they'll reach a point in, after the Bar Kokhba revolt where Jews will be banned from even entering Jerusalem. So yeah, these things they're fighting to protect and they think killing Jesus will guarantee that they'll hold on to them. They're going to lose all of that. But this word about one man giving his life for the good of others, of many, Caiaphas was right on target. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus died to gather us into one as God's children. How have you observed that gift in your life? Let's keep reading. Verse 53. Therefore, from that day, they took counsel to kill him. So Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a city called Ephraim, and there he remained with his disciples. Here's the result of this counsel. They agree together. Okay, Caiaphas, that's a great idea. Let's just kill him. That's their plan. We will hang on to what we have and we will kill Jesus to guarantee that nobody, not even God's Messiah, can take it from us. So because of that, Jesus withdraws from Judea or that area right around Jerusalem and moves a little further away to a little town called Ephraim. We're not real sure uh, archaeologically exactly which town that might have been. Some people suggest one that was maybe about 20 miles north near Bethel, uh, perhaps in that region. But whatever it is, he's moved out from the big city to the surrounding region uh, because it's not the moment yet for him to give his life. He knows when it's going to happen. So he stays there with his disciples. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near. And many from the region went up into Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were looking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given the order that if anyone knew where he was, he should make it known so that they could arrest him. John tells us the Passover of the Jews was near. The last event, big event that goes on and on, uh, was surrounding what we call Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. Uh, That was September, October. Uh, Now we're in spring. Uh, Passover is near. And uh, many from the region go up into Jerusalem a week ahead of time. 
Why would they do that? Well, living in cities where there were a lot of Gentiles, the way they did their burial practices did not follow the restrictions of Jewish law and uh, their observance of the law of Moses. So uh, a lot of them were worried that they uh, were ritually impure by being too near to corpses and things like that. So uh, the rituals for being purified from exposure to a corpse required a week of purification. So a lot of them are coming up a week early to Jerusalem so that they can be ritually pure and participate fully in the Passover without any uh, restriction. So these are probably the more pious Jews, the ones that are really concerned with making sure they're following all of the requirements of the law and the religion of the Jews. They are up there to purify themselves a week ahead. And uh, here we have this image of them standing around the temple where they've come to purify, be purified. And they're shooting the breeze and they're talking to each other. What do you think? You don't suppose he's not even going to show up at all, do you? Uh, they're, they're wondering because they know what's going on. The chief priests and Pharisees have already put out the order. If anybody knows where Jesus is, tell us. We need to arrest him. And it's, it's like they're just, their interest in Jesus is almost a sporting interest, right? I wonder who's going to come out on top in this one. And as Jews uh, in and near Jerusalem, they had lived through the past hundred years of people jockeying for positions of power. I mean, it's a, it's a joke. The history in the past several decades of what's been going on with the high priesthood. Different people have been buying the position and then undercutting one another to take it. And uh, it's just a huge joke. And they're looking on this with that kind of interest. Who's going to come out on top? Uh, um, you think maybe Jesus uh, has heard that they want to arrest him. Maybe he won't even show up at all. Boy, that would probably hurt his numbers because every Jew is supposed to come here for Passover. And if he didn't show up, he wouldn't be keeping the law of Moses. And uh, boy, that would be fodder for his enemies. And wow, I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen with all of this. God has showed up. These people are living through the single most important moment in the existence of this universe. That moment when God Almighty himself became flesh and became a participant in his creation. Not just as the God who exists beyond creation and has access to all of it and is present in, throughout it all and omnipotent and omniscient, but God took on flesh. He became flesh. The mystery of that is something we're still scratching our heads about 2,000 years later. This is the moment they are living and God has come in the flesh to give his life to redeem the cosmos from sin and death. He has come to make real the offer of eternal life. There's no bigger moment through which to live. I don't get the sense at all that these people have a clue about the significance of this moment. They're thinking of this just like any other thing. 
They're thinking of Jesus just like any other religious figure who's risen in popularity and their only interest seems to be in going through the motions, checking off the boxes on what Moses requires of you to, to keep the covenant. So yeah, we've got to come here a week early, get the ritual of purification out of the way and then we can do all the Passover stuff and we've crossed all our T's and dotted all our I's and we're all set. Pass the popcorn and let's speculate about what's going to happen with Jesus. They're just pondering what's going to come of all of this. I think we see two ways of dealing with the dilemma of Jesus in these verses. Some of them vow to kill Jesus. What I have built is too important to me. I'm going to let Jesus get a foot in the door. I'm I'm just going to kill him. Philosophically, that's the approach of many atheists today. They recognize that if Jesus is who he says he is, if the claims he makes are real, if he truly is the one who gave us life and the reason we breathe is him and we were created by him and for him, then we have to answer to him. If all of that's true, then everything I'm trying to do with my life, I have to give up. And I don't want to do that. I've built myself a cushy thing here. I'm happy with it. I want to hang on to it. So I will kill Jesus. I will philosophically work on whatever I have to put together to convince myself that Jesus is dead and gone and I don't have to worry about him. That's one approach. Others go about their religious rituals and their only interest in Jesus is curiosity. I'll just go through these rituals. I'll keep my religion. I'll do these things. And I don't know who Jesus is or what he's up to or who, who cares. I'll just look on as an observer and think of Jesus as yet another religious charismatic figure in the annals of human history and I'll go about my own religious life I want you to realize though that uh, people who uh, ignore Jesus and people who hate Jesus are really not that different in the end How do both of these positions end up putting you in basically the same place? Jesus is dangerous. If he is who he says he is, God Almighty, life itself, come to rescue us from sin and death if we will surrender to him in faith as Lord and Savior. If all of that is true, then we have to set aside what we have built for ourselves. We have to let him take our hearts in his hands and reshape our hearts. We have to put our plans and dreams and hopes and aspirations in his hands and allow him to rearrange them all as he sees fit. We have to hand him our identities and allow him to tell us who we are. 
what we are as Creator. Faced with this choice, many of us do what Caiaphas did. I'll kill him and be done with him. I'll be rid of Jesus by any means necessary. I will hang on to any argument out there, tenuous though it may be, and I will cling to that so that I don't have to answer to Jesus. Of course, that doesn't change reality, despite what you might think. Others can just observe this battle between Jesus and those who hate him and think, well, I just won't get involved. I'll just go about my life. I will build a very religious, decent, good life. But to have an only passing interest in he who is life, he who alone promises eternal life and promises it only to those who will put their faith in him, you're basically in the same boat as the one who hates Jesus. Only the people who truly believe in him, who truly surrender to him, find in Jesus the benefit he came to give us. Not only does he give us himself, not only does he give us life eternal, but he is in the process of drawing us back into one, making us part of the eternal family who will share eternity together in him. You realize that every Sunday you come here, you're getting a foretaste of what awaits us forever. Hug each other. Love on each other. This is the gift. It's at least a part of the gift. Jesus is the true gift. But because he built us for this, this is a part of being in Jesus. It's being in each other. He gave his life to make this possible for us. I pray that that's the only option you have any interest in when it comes to the dilemma of Jesus. Please join me in prayer. God, thank you for loving us. Jesus, thank you for coming to us. Thank you for being willing to die, to give up your life on the cross to draw us back into one and to offer to us, to extend to us the promise, the secure guarantee of life everlasting. Jesus, help us to find life only in you, not in anything else, not in the superficial cosmetic aspects of our living, but to find life only in you. Take our hearts in your hands. Take our lives and make of them what only you know you are up to with them. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.